You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The Viking settlement of Iceland is generally believed to have begun in the second half of the 9th century when Norse settlers migrated across the North Atlantic. The reason for the migration may be traced to a shortage of arable land in Scandinavia, and civil strife brought about the ambitions of the Norwegian king Harald I of Norway. Unlike the British Isles, Iceland was unsettled land and could be claimed without conflict with existing inhabitants. The years 870 and 874 have traditionally been considered the first years of settlement. Historians note that these sources are largely unreliable in terms of dating settlement. However, traditionally, the Icelandic age of settlement is considered to have lasted from the year 874 to 930, at which point most of the island had been claimed by Alpingi, the assembly of the Icelandic Commonwealth was founded in Pingvær. Almost everything known about the first settlers come from Islandenabaka and Landenemabak, two historical records preserved in script skin manuscripts. Estimates of the number of initial settlers range between 311 and 436. The first written books claim that the Norse settlers encountered Gaelic monks from the Hiberno Scottish mission when they arrived in Iceland. There is some archaeological evidence for a monastic settlement from the British Isles. Sediment deposits indicate people lived there around 800 and crosses consistent with the 
Herberno Scottish style were carved in the wall of a nearby cave. The oldest known source which mentions the name Iceland is an 11th century Gothic ruin carving, while the oldest archaeological finds indicating settlement date back to the 9th century. The first written source to mention the existence of Iceland is a book by a Godelic monk, Dusul, which dates back to the year 825. Dusulis claims to have met some monks who have lived on the island of Thule. They said that darkness reigned during the winter, but that the summers were bright enough to pick lice from one's clothing. Lovely. While the veracity of this source may be questioned, there is little doubt that the inhabitants of the British Isles were aware of a sizable landmass far up north. Additionally, Iceland is only about 450 kilometers from the Faroes, which had been visited by the Irish monks in the 6th century and settled by the Norse around the year 650. A cabin in Hafnir was abandoned between the years 770 and 880, showing that it was built well before the traditional settlement date of 874. It is thought to have been an outpost only inhabited part of the year, but it is not known whether it was built by people from Scandinavia or the British Isles. It is claimed that the first Norseman to rest his feet on Icelandic soil was a Viking by the name of Nadudar. Nadudar stayed for only a short period of time, but gave the country a name. He called it the Land of Snow. He was followed by Swede Garo Svarvinsson, who was the first to stay over winter. At some time around 860, a storm pushed his ship farther to the north until he reached the eastern coast of Iceland. Garor approached the island from the east, sailed westward along the coast, and then up the north, building a house in Hasavik. He completed a full circle circumnavigating the island and establishing that the landmass in question was indeed an island. He departed the following summer never to return, but not before giving the island a new name, Garros Island. One of his men, Natafari, decided to stay behind with two slaves. Natafari settled in what is now known as Natafarafik. Natafari was not a permanent settler. The second Norseman to arrive in Iceland was named Flaki Vilger Orson, but the year of his arrival is not clear. According to the old story, he took three ravens to help him find his way. Thus, he was nicknamed Raven Flaki. Flaki set his ravens free near the Faroe Islands. His first raven flew back to the Faroes. The second flew up in the air and then returned to the ship. However, the third flew in front of the ship 
and they followed its direction to Iceland. He landed in the West Fords after passing what is now Reykjavik. One of his men, Faxi, remarked that they seemed to have found a great land. The bay facing Reykjavik is therefore known as Faxafloi. A harsh winter called all of Flocky's cattle to die. He cursed this cold country, and when he spotted a drift ice in the fjord, he decided to name it Island, It Island, or what we now know as Iceland. Despite difficulties in finding food, he and his men stayed another year, this time in Borgafarjur, but they headed back to Norway the following summer. Flocky would return much later and settle what is now known as Flaka Dalur. Ingelfor Arnarsson. There was a man in the north, Norway to be exact, Ingelflor, who is truly said to be the first to leave it for Iceland, in the time when Haraldur the fair-haired was 16 winters of age. He settled south of Reykjavik. Another Norseman by the name of Inglefer Arneson had investigated a blood feud in his homeland. Norway, he and his foster brother, Hojafleur, went on an exploratory expedition to Iceland and to stayed over that winter. A few years later, they returned to settle the land with their men. When they approached the island, Inglefer cast his high seat pillars overboard and swore that he would settle where they drifted to shore. Then he set his slaves, Vifil and Carly, to search for the pillars. They found his foster brother, Hilafleur, murdered, and all his men gone. Ingelfleur gave his foster brother a heathen funeral in the Norse style and slew the murderers who had fled to the Westman Islands. As winter approached, Ingelfleur's slaves found the pillars by Arnafal. When summer came, he built a farmstead in Reykjavik and claimed all the land west of the rivers. His slave, Carly, did not care for the location and said to Ingerfleur, how ill that we should pass good land to settle in this remote peninsula. Written sources consider the age of settlement in Iceland to have become with Ingerfleur's settlement, for he was the first to sail to Iceland with the purpose of settling the land. He was followed by many others within about 60 years all the usable land had been taken. Manuscripts mention 1,500 farms and place names and more than 3,500 people. The material is arranged in geographical fashion and seems to give a relatively complete picture on how the country was settled. Academic estimates of the number of people who migrated to the country during the age of settlement range between 4,300 to 24,000. Archaeological evidence strongly suggests that the timing of the settlement as described is roughly accurate. 
the whole country was occupied within a couple of decades towards the end of the ninth century. A number of reasons have been offered for the settlement of Iceland. Available land would have been attractive to Viking Age Scandinavians, especially given the relatively warm climate in Iceland at that time. The observation of valuable resources such as walrus ivory made Iceland attractive to those looking to profit on trade. Greater resistance to Viking incursions in the British Isles and continental Europe in the late 9th century pushed Vikings to seek more peaceful opportunities. Written sources emphasize how Harald Feinherr's centralization of Norway and imposition of burdensome taxes on farmers encouraged farmers to migrate to Iceland. The notion that population pressure drove migration to Iceland remains unsupported at the academic literature at this time. Written sources say some settlers took land freely. Others bought lands from earlier settlers. Some were gifted land by earlier settlers, and some settlers took lands from others through the use of force or threats of force. Lands were likely not rented during the age of settlement. Some argue that lands were given away or taken freely because earlier settlers had no need for such extensive lands. It's noted that it could be rational for early settlers to encourage new settlers to settle lands nearby, so as to ease the maintenance of cattle and slaves, and as insurance in times of crisis. The age of settlement is considered to have ended in the year 930 with the establishment of the Alpingi. Archaeological evidence shows, however, that other immigrants continued to arrive in Iceland through about the 10th century. The authors of one study speculate that the continued immigration may have been needed to sustain the population. The Icelandic Commonwealth is considered to have begun in the year 930. In the year 985, we move on to Greenland. It was the year 985 that Eric the Red was believed to have discovered Greenland after being exiled from Iceland for murder in the year 982. Three years later, in 986, Eric the Red returned with 14 ships, surviving as 25 set out for the expedition. He had lost 11, going from Iceland to Greenland. Two areas along Greenland's southwest coast were colonized by Norse settlers, including Eric the Red around 986. The land was, at best, marginal for Norse pastoral farming. The settlers arrived during a warm phase when short-season crops such as rye and barley could be grown. Sheep and hardy cattle were also raised for food, wool, and hides. Their main export was walrus ivory, which was traded for iron and other goods which could not be produced locally. Greenland became a dependency of the King of Norway in the year 1261. 
During the 13th century, the population may have reached as high as 5,000. Divided by two main settlements, the Eastern Settlement and the Western Settlement. The organization of these settlements revolved mainly around religion, and they consisted of around 250 farms, which were split into approximately 14 communities that were centered around 14 churches, one of which was a cathedral at Gerar. The Catholic Diocese of Greenland was subject to the Archdiocese of Nidaros. However, many bishops chose to exercise this office from afar. As the years wore on, the climate shifted. The Little Ice Age became a real thing. In 1379, the northernmost settlement was attacked by the Skralings, or the, which is the Norse wood for Inuit. Crops failed and trade declined. The Greenland colony gradually faded away. By 1450, it lost contact with Norway and Iceland and disappeared from all but a few Scandinavian legends. Next is the Viking colonization of North America. It began as early as the 10th century when Norsemen explored the settled areas of the North Atlantic, including the northeastern fringes of North America. Viking houses were found at Lanuzox Meadows near the northern tip of Newfoundland in the year 1960. This discovery aided the recognition of archaeological exploration for the Vikings in the North Atlantic. The Norse colony in Greenland lasted for almost 500 years. Continental North American settlements were small and did not develop into permanent colonies. While voyages, for example, to collect timber are likely to have occurred for some time, there is no evidence of any lasting Norse settlements on mainland North America. According to the Icelandic sagas, Eric the Red's saga, Saga of the Greenlanders, plus chapters of the Hasbok and the Flatley book, the Norse started to explore lands to the west of Greenland only a few years after the Greenland settlements were established. In 985, while sailing from Iceland to Greenland, with a migration fleet consisting of 400 to 700 settlers and 25 other ships, remember he lost 11, so only 14 made it, a merchant named Barjni Herjof was blown off course and after three days sailing, he sighted land west of the fleet. Bajarni was only interested in finding his father's farm, but he described his discovery to Leif Erikson, who explored the area in more detail and planted a small settlement 15 years later. The saga describes three separate areas discovered during his escalation. Helleland, which means the land of flat stones, Markland, the land of forests, and Vinland, the land of wine. It was in Vinland that the settlement described in the sagas were founded. 
three of Eric the Red's children visited the North American continent. His sons Leif and Thorvald and their half-sister Freydis. Thorvald died in North America. Using the routes, landmarks, currents, rocks, and winds that Bajarni had described to him, Leif sailed some 1,800 miles to the west of the land with a crew of 35, sailing the same Kanar Banarji had used to make the voyage. He described Heluland as level and wooded with broad white beaches wherever they went and a gently sloping shoreline. Leif and others had wanted his father, Eric the Red, to lead this expedition and talked him into it. However, as Eric attempted to join his son, Leif, on the voyage towards these new lands, he fell off his horse as it slipped on wet rocks near the shore. Thus, he was injured and stayed behind. Leif wintered in the year 1001 near Cape Bald on the northern tip of Newfoundland, where one day his foster father, Tyker, was found drunk on what the saga describes as wineberries. Squashberries, gooseberries, and granberries all grew wild in the area. There were varying explanations for Leif apparently describing fermented berries as wine. Leif spent another winter there without conflict and sailed back to Greenland to assume his duties to his father. In the year 1004, Leif's brother, Thorvald Eriksson, sailed with a crew of 30 men to Vinland and spent the following winter at Leif's camp. In the spring, Thorvald attacked nine of the local people who were sleeping under three skin-covered canoes. The ninth victim escaped and soon came back to the Norse camp with a force. Thorvald was killed by an arrow that succeeded in passing through the barricade. Although brief hostilities ensued, the North explorers stayed another winter and left the following spring. Subsequently, another of Leif's brother, Thorstein, sailed to the New World to retrieve his dead brother's body, but he died before leaving Greenland. In the year 1009, Thorfinn's Karl Sivani, also known as Thorfinn the Valiant, supplied three ships with livestock and 160 men and women. After a cruel winter, he headed south and landed at Stromjeford. He later moved to Stromosoy, possibly because of the current was stronger there. A sign of peaceful relations between the indigenous people and the Norsemen is noted here. The two sides bartered with furs and gray squirrel skins for milk and red cloth, which the natives tied around their heads as a sort of headdress. There are conflicting stories, but one account states that a bull belonging to Carl Safini came storming out of the woods 
so frightening the natives that they ran to their skin boats and rowed away. They returned three days later in force. The natives used catapults hoisting a large sphere on a pole. It was dark blue in color and about the size of a sheep's belly, which flew over the heads of the men and made an ugly din. The Norsemen retreated. Leif Erikson's half-sister, Fridius Eric Skottavtur, was pregnant and unable to keep up with the retreating Norsemen. She called out to them to stop fleeing from such pitiful wretches, adding that if she had weapons, she could do better than that. Fridus, even though she was pregnant, seized the sword belonging to a man who had been killed by the natives. She pulled one of her breasts out of her bodices and stuck it with the sword, frightening the natives who fled. Settlements in continental North America aimed to exploit natural resources such as furs, and in particular lumber, which was in short supply in Greenland. It is unclear why these short-term settlements did not become permanent, though it was likely in part because of the hostile relations with the indigenous people. Nevertheless, it appears that the sporadic voyages to Markland for forges, timber, and trade with the locals could have lasted as long as 400 years. Evidence of continuing trips includes the main penny, a Norwegian coin from King Olaf Kier's reign from the year 1067 to the year 1093, allegedly found in a Native American archeological site in the U.S. state of Maine, suggesting an exchange between the Norse and the Native Americans late in or after the 11th century and an entry in the Icelandic annuals from the year 1347, which refers to a small Greenlandic vessel with a crew of 18 that arrived in Iceland while attempting to return to Greenland from Markland with a load of timber. For centuries, it remained unclear whether the Icelandic stories represented real voyages by the Vikings to North America. The first sagas gained serious historic response respectability when in 1837, the Danish antiquarian Carl Christian Raffen pointed out the possibility for a Norse settlement in or voyages to North America. North America by the name Vinland first appeared in written sources by the work of Adam of Bremen from approximately 1075. The most important works about North America and the early Norse activities there, namely the sagas of Icelanders, first reached written form only in the 13th and 14th century. Evidence of Norse west of Greenland came in the 1960s when archaeologists excavated a Norse settlement at Lanas Ox Meadows in Newfoundland. The location of various lands described the sagas remains unclear. However, many historians identify Hulaland with Baffin Island and Markland with Labrador. The location of Vinland poses a thornier question. Most believe that the Lanes Ox Meadows settlement represents the Vinland settlement described in the sagas. 
Other argue that the sagas depict Vinland as a warmer than Newfoundland and therefore lying further south. In the year 2012, Canadian researchers identified possible signs of Norse outputs in Nanook at Tanfield Valley on Baffin Island, as well as on Nungavik, Willows Island, in Avialik, unusual fabric cordage found on Baffin Island in the 1980s and stored at the Canadian Museum of Civilization was identified in 1999 as possible Viking manufacture. The discovery led to more in-depth exploration of Tanfield Valley archaeological site. Archaeological findings in 2015 at Point Rosé on the southwest coast of Newfoundland reveal evidence of locating being a bog iron smelting site and therefore a possible second 10th century Viking settlement in Canada. The possible settlement was initially discovered through satellite imagery and in magnometer readings and archaeologists have been excavating the area. Studies of genetic diversity have provided scientific confirmation to accompany archaeologists' evidence of Viking expansion. They additionally indicate patterns of ancestry, imply new immigrations, and show the actual flow of individuals between desperate regions. However, attempts to determine historical population genetics are complicated by subsequent migrations and demographic fluctuations. In particular, the rapid migrations of the 20th century have made it difficult to assess what prior genetic states were. Genetic evidence contradicts the common perceptions that the Vikings were primarily pillagers and raiders. Articles summarize recent research and concludes that, as both male and female genetic markers are present, the evidence is indicative of colonization instead of raiding and occupying. However, this is also disputed by unequal ratios of male and female, which indicate that more men settled than women, an element of raiding or occupying population. Why chromosome haplotypes serve as markers of parental lineage such as the same as mDNA represents the ma maternal lineage. Together these two methods provide an option for tracing back a people's genetic history and charting the historical migrations of both males and females. Often considered the purest remnants of ancient Nordic genetics, Icelanders traced 75 to 80 percent of the paternal ancestry to Scandinavia and 20 to 25 percent to Scotland and Ireland. On the maternal side only 37 percent is from Scandinavia and the remaining 63 percent is mostly Scottish and Irish. Iceland also holds one of the most well-documented lineage records which in many cases goes back 15 generations and at least 300 years. Together, these two records allow for a mostly reliable view of historical Scandinavian genetic structure, 
although the genetics of Iceland are influenced by the Norse-British migration, as well as that directly from Scandinavia. Haplogroup 1 is the most common haplotype among Scandinavian males. It is present in 35% of males in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, 40% of males within Western Finland. It is also prominent on the Baltic and North Sea coast, but decreases further south. Haplogroup R1b is another very common haplotype in all of Western Europe. However, it is not distinctly linked to Vikings or their expansion. There are indications that it is a mutant strand, RL165, may have been carried to Great Britain by the Vikings, but the topic is currently inconclusive. The mitochondrial C1 haplotype is primarily an East Asian American haplotype that developed just prior to migration across the Bering Sea. This maternal haplotype, however, was found in several Icelandic samples. While originally considered to be a 20th century immigrant, a more complete analysis has shown that this haplotype has been present in Iceland for at least 300 years and is distinct from other C1 lineages. This evidence indicates a likely genetic exchange back and forth between Iceland, Greenland, and Vinland, otherwise known as North America. Now let's move on to the Viking influence on the English language. The long-term linguistic effect of Viking settlements in England was threefold. Believe it or not, over a thousand Old Norse words eventually became part of standard English. Numerous places in the east and northeast of England have Danish names, and many English personal names are of Scandinavian origin. Scandinavian words have entered the English language, including the words landing, score, beck, fellow, take, busting, and steersman. The vast majority of loanwords did not appear in documents until the early 12th century. These include many modern words which uses this k sound, the sk sound, such as skirt, sky, and skin. Other words appearing in written sources at the time include the words again, awkward, birth, cake, dregs, fog, freckles, gasp, law, moss, neck, ransack, root, scowl, sister, Seat, sly, smile, want, weak, and window. From the Old Norse meaning, wind eye. 
Some of the words that came into use are among the most common in English, such as to go, to come, to sit, to listen, to eat, both, same, get, and give. The system of personal pronouns was affected, with they, them, and their replacing the earlier forms. Old Norse influenced the verb to be, the replacement of sindan by are is almost certainly Scandinavian in origins, as is the third person singular ending s in the present tense of verbs. There are more than 1,500 Scandinavian place names in England, mainly in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. Over 600 in an end in by, the Scandinavian word for village. For example, Grimsby, Nasby, Whitby, and others end in Thorpe, which means in Viking farm, or Thwaite, which is Viking for clearing, and Toft, which is Viking for homestead. The distribution of family names showing Scandinavian influence is still, as analysts of names ending in son reveals, concentrated in the north and east, corresponding to areas of former Viking settlements. Early medieval records indicate that over 60% of personal names in Yorkshire and North Lincolnshire showed Scandinavian influence. The Vikings had great technology. They were equipped with the technology, technologically superior longships. For purpose of conducting trade, however, another type of ship, the canar, wider and deeper in draft, were customarily used. The Vikings were competent sailors, adept in land warfare as well as at sea and they often struck at accessible and poorly defended targets, usually with near impunity. The effectiveness of these tactics earned Vikings a formidable reputation as raiders and pirates. Chroniclers paid little attention to other aspects of medieval Scandinavian culture. This slant was actuated by the absence of contemporary primary sources documentation from within the Viking Age communities themselves. Little documentary evidence was available until later, when Christian sources began to contribute. As historians and archaeologists have developed more resources to challenge the one-sided description of the chroniclers, a more balanced picture of the Norsemen have become apparent. The Vikings used their longships to travel vast distances and attain certain tactical advantages in battle. They could perform highly effective hit-and-run attacks in which they quickly approached the target, then left as rapidly as possible before a counteroffensive could be launched. Because of the ship's negligible draft, the Vikings could sail in shallow waters, allowing them to invade far inland along the rivers. The ship's speeds also prodigious for the time, 
estimated at a maximum 14 to 15 knots. The use of the longships ended when technology changed, and ships began to be constructed using stars, saws instead of axes. This led to a lesser quality of ships. While battles at sea were rare, they would occasionally occur when Viking ships attempted to board European merchant vessels in Scandinavian waters. When larger scale battles ensued, Viking crews would rope together all nearby ships and slowly proceed toward the enemy target. While advancing, the warriors hurled spears, arrows, and other projectiles at the opponents. When the ships were sufficiently close, melee combat would ensue using axes, swords, and spears until the enemy ship could be easily boarded. The roping technique allowed Viking crews to remain strong in numbers and act as a unit. But this uniformity also created problems. A Viking ship in the line could not retreat or pursue hostiles without breaking the formation and cutting the ropes, which weakened the overall Viking fleet and was a burdensome task to perform in the heat of battle. In general, these tactics enabled Vikings to quickly destroy the opposition posted during raids. Together with an increasing centralization of government in the Scandinavian countries, the old system of Lildang, a fleet mobilization system where every ship community had to deliver one ship and crew was discontinued. Changes in shipbuilding in the rest of Europe led to the demise of the longship for military purposes. By the 11th and 12th century, European fighting ships were built with raised platforms fore and aft from which archers could shoot down into the relatively low longships. The nautical achievements of the Vikings were exceptional. For instance, they made distant tables for sea voyages that were remarkably precise. They have been found to differ by only 2 to 4% from modern satellite measurements, even on such long distances as across the Atlantic Ocean. The archaeological find known as the Visby lenses from the Swedish island of Gotland may be components of a telescope. It appears to date from long before the invention of the telescope in the 17th century. Recent evidence suggests that the Vikings may have also made use of an optical compass as a navigation aid, using the light splitting and polarization filtering properties of Iceland spar to find the location of the sun when it was not directly visible. An archaeological find in Sweden consists of a bone fragment fixated with an inoperated material. The piece as yet is undated. These bones may be the remains of a traitor from the Middle East. Some of the most important trading ports found by the Norse during the period include both existing and former cities such as Denmark, Rib also in Denmark, Hedebe in Germany, Veneta in Pomerania, 
Trousseau in Poland, Bjorgiven in Norway, Kapang in Norway, Skirkasal in Norway, Berka in Sweden, Bordeaux in France, York in England, Dublin, Ireland, and Adeljuburg in Russia. One important center of trade was at Hedebeg, which was Germany. Close to the border with the Franks, it was effectively a crossroads between the cultures until its eventual destruction by the Norwegians in an intercene dispute around the year 1050. York was also the center of the kingdom of Jorvik from 866 and discoveries there, a silk cap, a counterfeit of coin from Samarkand and a cowrie shell from the Red Sea or Persian Gulf suggest that the Scandinavian trade connections in the 10th century reached beyond Byzantium. However, those items could also have been Byzantine imports, and there is no reason to assume that the Ferragines traveled significantly beyond Byzantine and the Caspian Sea. Viking religion refers to the religious traditions of the Norsemen prior to the Christianization of Scandinavia, specifically during the Viking Age. Norse religion is a folk religion. It was the northern variation of the religion practiced on the lands inhabited by the Germanic tribes across most of northern and central Europe prior to Roman and Holy Roman incursions. However, it was not formalized nor categorized as a subset of Germanic paganism until it was described by outsiders who came in contact with the native practitioners. Knowledge of Norse religion is mostly drawn from the results of archaeological fieldwork, etymology, and early written materials as it is largely a product of early practitioners who did not have a written history. The Germanic tribes rarely or never had temples in a modern sense. The blot, the form of worship practiced by the ancient Germanic and Scandinavian people, resembled that of the Celts, Slavs, and Balts it could occur in the sacred groves. It could also take place at home or in a simple altar of piled stones known as a horger. However, these seems to have been few more important centers such as Skernsgal, Lejri, Uppsala. Adam of Brenham claims that there was a temple in Uppsala with three rudent statues, Thor, Odin and Friar. Remains of what may have been a religious building have been excavated in Holland and Borg. Devotion to deceased relatives was a mainstay of Norse religion. Ancestors constituted one of the most ancient and widespread 
types of deity worship in the Nordic region. Although most scholarships focus on larger communities dedicated to more fantastic gods and myths of the Vikings, it is understood that some of the sort of ancestor worship it was probably an element of the private religious practices of the farmstead and village. Often, in addition to showing adoration to the standard Nordic gods, warriors would toast to their kinsmen who lay in barrows. Your journey is now ending. the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.